but but when they look at people who get so devastated from the loss of a game, they just can't explain what's going on. And certainly, this is taken to extremes. You hear of uh, stories on the news where people riot both after a championship win and after a championship loss. Obviously, some people take their sports teams a little too seriously, but I think there's a biblical principle that's at work when people respond this emotionally to the loss of something that they love. Proverbs says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. In other words, if you set your mind toward some specific goal, the winning of your team, and that goal is not accomplished, it can leave you feeling devastated and crushed. Maybe you felt that way after a presidential election when the candidate that you elect, you chose did not get elected. The point is that we as humans are prone to disappointment when our hopes are crushed. We have certain expectations and if they're not met, we can be crushed. And it's one thing when our hopes are crushed because of something that has little eternal significance like sports, but it's another thing when our when we are disappointed, when we are crushed because of God failing to follow through on His promises from our point of view. Like, we expected God to do something here and He didn't do it. We have a, a certain expectation for what God should do in each situation in life and when He doesn't do it, our heart is sickened. We are distressed, confused, frustrated, and disappointed. In Exodus 5, we saw Moses and Aaron going before Pharaoh and demanding that he let God's people go. But Pharaoh rejected their demand, and instead, he makes it harder on the people of Israel who are living there. The chapter concludes with Moses' disappointment with God. God, you haven't delivered your people like you promised. See how Moses' hopes are crushed. He's expecting God to deliver. In fact, God told him he would deliver Israel. And Moses is expecting to do it right away. And he hasn't done it. And so Moses is disappointed. And so chapter 6 is God's response to Moses' disappointment of him. And God responds with a series of I will statements which show his power, his presence, and his promise of deliverance. So let's read our passage this morning. I'll read you follow along. Chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. And we'll go through chapter 7, verse 5. This is the Word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. 
I will bring you to the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's households, the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, Hanuk and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel and Jamin and Ohad and Jachin and Zohar and Shau, the son of Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon and Kohath and Merari. And the length of Levi's life was 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, according to their families. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, and Hebron, and Uziel. And the length of Kohath's life was 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the families of the Levites, according to their generations. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the length of Amram's life was 137 years. The sons of Izar, Korah, and Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, and Elzaphan, and Zithri. Aaron married Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab, the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Aser, and Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the families of the Korahites. Aaron's son, Eleazar, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' households of the Levites, according to their families. It was the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their hosts. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the sons of Israel from Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. Now it came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So, at the end of chapter 5, we have this great disappointment by the people of Israel and by Moses. And God responds in chapter 6. He responds to the disappointment and the doubt of His people with constant reassurance of His person and His purpose. So there are three main points that we're going to see this morning. Number one, 
God responds to the disappointment of His people by reminding them of His power. God responds to the disappointment of His people by reminding them of His power. Chapter 6, verse 1. When Moses says, God, You haven't delivered us. You told me that, that You were going to deliver Israel and You haven't done it. Here's how God responds. It's going to happen, Moses. Notice verse 1. For under middle of the verse, for under compulsion or by my mighty hand, he will let them go. And under compulsion or by my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this of his land. God reminds Moses of his power. This is a shorter version of what God had already told Moses. Turn back to chapter three. Chapter three, verse sixteen. And here he tells Moses that, that he is powerful to deliver. Moses should have known this. Moses should have been reminded of this, but God had to remind him. So in chapter 3, verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel. This is when he calls Moses there at the burning bush. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Verse 17, so I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. So there's God's promise. He's going to deliver them to this land that He had promised. Verse 18, They will pay heed to what you say, and you, with the elders of Israel, will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now, please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. So God uses the same sort of wording here in chapter 3 as he does in chapter 6, under compulsion. But he's initially not going to let you go. He's not going to let you take the people of Israel out. Turn back to chapter 6. God had told Moses, go to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go, but he's not going to listen to you. And so under compulsion, by my mighty hand, he will listen to you. He will let my people go. So first, God responds to disappointment by reminding his people of his power. Second, second main point, God responds to the disappointment of his people by reminding them of his presence. By reminding him of uh, them of his presence. Verses 2 through 5. Chapter 6, verses 2 through 5. Notice he says uh, several things about himself. First, I am Yahweh, or I am the Lord. I am Jehovah. Verse 2, God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this, this phrase here, when you see the Lord in capital letters in your English translation, that's a direct uh, translation of the word Jehovah or Yahweh from the Hebrew. And, and God saying, I am the covenant God. I am the one who has covenanted with your fathers to make them into a great, to make you, Israel, into a great nation. And it's interesting that God reminds Moses about his presence. Again, because we, this keeps coming up in the book of Exodus. Has, have you noticed that God keeps reminding Moses about his presence? In chapter 3, remember when Moses had all these, these excuses, God responded by reminding him of his presence. Moses says, Who am I that I should deliver Israel? God says, 
I will be with you. Moses says, what will I tell the elders of Israel? Tell them I am has sent you. But what if they don't believe me? God says, give them signs and they'll know it's from me. And then Moses' final excuse is, I'm not an eloquent speaker. It's not going to work. And God says, I will be with your mouth. All of those answers point to God being with Moses. And this keeps coming up in the text because Moses keeps forgetting this critical point. And I think it's helpful for us to be reminded, and we shouldn't tire of of hearing of this point, that God is with us. Because we as Christians often forget this basic Christian truth. That part of what it means to be a Christian is is that God is dwelling inside of us through the person of the Holy Spirit. And that He will be with us for all of eternity we'll get to experience His presence in a much greater way. But God reminds Moses, listen, I am with you. I have not abandoned you, Moses. The second thing He says here with regard to His presence is found in verses 3 and 4, and that is that I am the God of your fathers. He says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by My name, Lord, Yahweh, I did not make Myself known to them. So this is kind of a peculiar a way to put this because it sounds like they had never known the name Yahweh, the covenant name for God. But it wasn't that God had never used that name. In fact, He used it in Genesis 4, 9, and 12, and 22, and 24. So they knew that name. They had heard that name, Yahweh, before. But the point is that they didn't understand the significance of the name. They knew that it was a name that referred to the Almighty God, but they didn't understand what it meant. And now... God is saying, I'm telling you what it means that I have a covenant with you. That I haven't forgotten Israel. That I have, I have made this promise to them and I will follow through. It's similar to the name Messiah for us. We understand the significance of the name Messiah. That it means Christ, the anointed, the promised one. And we know what it means because it meant that He came to this earth to die for us. And that He now lives for us. And that He will return for us. We understand what the Messiah means. It's not that the Old Testament prophet didn't understand the word Messiah, right? They understood it clearly. But they didn't understand it the, the significance of it. They knew that it referred to their promised Redeemer, but they didn't understand the significance of it like we now do. And I think the same thing is happening here when God's saying, your fathers didn't know this name. He's saying that that you now understand in a greater way, more significantly, what it means that I have a covenant relationship with you. The third thing he says about his presence is found in verse 5, and that is that he is concerned about their trouble. Furthermore, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, the sons of Israel. He's heard it. He knows it. This is similar to what he said in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. In chapter 3, verse 7, I have heard your groanings and I will listen and I will respond. And God is a loving and caring God. He's concerned about His people and He will come to their aid. And this is the, the, the second main thing that we need to see this morning. God responds to the disappointment of His people by reminding them of His promises. Uh, excuse me, by reminding them of His presence. And then thirdly, God responds to the disappointment of His people by reminding them of His promises. Verses 6-8. through eight. He reminds them of the promise that He had made. So Moses is saying, where are you, God? You haven't delivered us. And God says, listen, I am powerful to deliver. I am with you. 
and I have promised to deliver you. So here's the promise in verses 6-8. through eight. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So I'm going to deliver you. I will do it. I will drive them out. I will redeem you. And then in verse 7, He promises that they will be adopted by Him. Then I will take you for My people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. One of the great themes that runs throughout the Scripture is God's, God's pursuit of developing and coming into a relationship with His people. That's how it started in the Garden of Eden. That's how it will finish in Revelation 22 and all of what's in between Genesis 3 and, and Revelation 22 is God's pursuit of His people. I will be their people and I, I will be their God and they will be My people. So a promise of redemption, of adoption, and then verse 8, a promise of this land. That this, will, this land that I had promised it will be their inheritance. Moses, do you want proof that I will be with you? Do you want proof that you will be delivered? Well, here it is. It's going to come when you receive that land. When you receive the land, you'll look back on what happened, and you'll be amazed. That was all God. So He doesn't give him any tangible proof right there. He just says, remember my power, remember my presence, and remember what I promised. Now, as is often the case with believers, God's loving reminders are often met with doubt. And that's what happens in verses 9-13. through His reminders are met with doubt. Verse 9, we read of the doubt of the people of Israel. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. It's the nature of life when we're weighed down by our burdens. We can, we can cloud out reality, what God is really doing. And this is the case for the people of Israel. But there's also this doubt of this great leader. Moses, verses 10-13. through 13. Moses says to uh, God says to Moses, go to Pharaoh now. And notice Moses' response in verse 12. But Moses spoke before the Lord saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How is Pharaoh going to listen to me? For I'm unskilled in speech. And Moses has a point, doesn't he? What happened the last time that Moses told Pharaoh to let God's people go? Pharaoh mocked God. He said, Who is this God that I should obey Him? I'm not going to let your people go. They're lazy. He's just trying to get them to stop working. And, and the result was Moses looked like a fool and Israel was, was put to greater and harder work, deeper despair because of their work. So Moses is thinking, what's going to happen if I do it again? Is Pharaoh going to make God look like a fool? Try to make God look like a fool? Is He going to make me look like a fool? Is He going to make the work harder on Israel? Is He going to make it more severe? The people of Israel won't see what's going on. And they actually have an inclination toward God. Then how is Pharaoh going to see what's going on? See Moses' point? Perhaps Moses is thinking he'd be better off shepherding back in Midian. It's much more peaceful there. But God doesn't give up on him, does He? Look at verse 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So we come to the climax of the story here, this this passage. And we want to know how this turns out. 
Moses is disappointed. The people of Israel are disappointed. God says, I'll be with you. I'm powerful to save and I will deliver you. And then Moses says, but I can't do it. And God says, but you can and you're going to go. And now we want to know how this turns out. And then, I mean, think of yourself. If you're an original Jewish reader to this text, you'd be wanting to know the end of this story. And then, verses 14 through 27, we have a genealogy. What in the world is that doing there? And I would say the point of this is is as follows. God responds to the disappointment of His people by reminding them that He often uses unlikely means to accomplish His purposes. God often uses unlikely means to accomplish His purposes. Moses includes this section here in order to remind people of His humble origins. And his point in all this is not to say, look what what a great leader I turned into, but to say that I am not Moses. I am not, remember he's the author here, I am not the hero of the Exodus events. I come from humble origins and I was constantly doubting God and yet God still used me to deliver His people. Notice, we don't have a full genealogy here. Did you notice there's only how many sons of Jacob are listed? There's three, right? You got Reuben and Simeon and Levi. Now Levi is is Moses' ancestor, and so we would expect that. We would expect to have Levi. But but I think the reason that there's only three is because Moses is just trying to show where he falls in the genealogy of the family of Jacob. And he's from the third oldest son. Now if if Levi were the tenth oldest son, let's say, I think he would have list of all of them and then stopped it at Levi. He's just trying to show how he's connected to Jacob, how he's connected to Abraham, to these promises that God had made. But it's amazing, and I say he comes from humble origins, because do you realize that that, uh, Moses and Aaron's ancestor, Levi, was not the oldest son of Jacob? Remember, in this society, that was the most privileged position. He would get the inheritance. But he doesn't come from Reuben, does he? Moses and Aaron don't come from Reuben, and they don't even come from the second oldest son, Simeon. They're from the third oldest son, Levi. And so we start to see some of Moses' humble origins. There's nothing special in his pedigree that, that made him into a great leader. It was simply that God chose to use him. And even if you consider the family of Levi, their father, Amram, was not the oldest of Levi's sons. He was the second oldest son. And further, if you consider Moses, Moses was not the oldest son. Who was? It was Aaron, right? He was three years older. And so, in other words, there's nothing special about Moses and Aaron. There's nothing special in their family line that would make God choose them. And if we think about even these three sons of Jacob, we have to admit that there is little that is praiseworthy about them, right? Reuben committed incest with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi act out, acted out in vengeance and killed a whole town, the Shechemites, in a ruthless way. And so here's the point of this genealogy that seems to be just kind of, oh, I've got to find a place to put it, so here's a good spot for it. The point of it is that Moses and Aaron are not special because of their birth. They're not special because of their personal accomplishments. They, Moses was doubting God. Moses and Aaron are not the heroes of the book of Exodus. They're simply used by God because God chose them. 
They're simply special because God chose them to be special. God is the hero of Exodus. God is the hero of every story in the Bible. It's not about the human leaders. It's not about the, the, the widows who did great, had great faith. It's about God and what He did through these people. And the reason I, I think that that is the case here is because of verses 26 and 27. Do you notice the emphasis on this is the same Moses and Aaron? Look at verse 26. It was the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, and then He tells them, verse 27, they were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh. Then look at the end of the verse. It was the same Moses and Aaron. So here, think, think of yourself as an original Jewish reader again and, and recognize that, okay, so where, where does Moses and Aaron come from? What is their origin? Why did God choose to use them? And they find out that they have very humble origins. In other words, look at whom God chose. Moses and Aaron were not men of great privilege or pedigree. They didn't have the credentials to be great leaders, but God chose them and formed them in order to do exactly what He wanted through them. So here's how God often responds to the disappointment of his people, he reminds them how he chose them. He uses unlikely means to accomplish his purposes. But even that's not enough. Verses 28 through 30, God's people still doubt. Verse uh, 28 Now it came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. But Moses said before the Lord, and this should sound familiar. Behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? This is not the first time he said it. This is not the second time he said it. This is at least the third time. I'm unskilled. How's Pharaoh going to listen to me? And as I mentioned before, it wasn't really about Pharaoh listening to Moses. God was the one who's going to convince Pharaoh through the signs and wonders. In fact, that's why God allowed his heart to be hardened. Finally, Chapter 7, verses 1-5. through five. God responds to the disappointment and doubt of His people. We could say perpetual doubt. By constantly reassuring them of His power and His purpose. God constantly reassures His people of His power and His purpose. There are three things I want to point out in these verses. First, did you notice that God said to Moses that Moses will be like God to Pharaoh. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean that Moses would be like God? It seems almost... Uh, I, uh, I'm trying to think of a word, uh, but it sounds like idolatry. right? It sounds like Moses is being a God. But his point is, he's making an analogy that, that Moses would sort of be like the originator of the message, like God is to Moses. But Moses would be the originator of the message, but because he's unskilled in speech... He had, to have, he had to go through somebody. The message would ultimately make it to Pharaoh, the final recipient. And it would go through, notice, verse, uh, verse 3, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall, be, shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. So, at the end of verse 1, it says, Aaron shall be your prophet. So, Moses, in this analogy, is like God. He's the originator of their message. And then the message is going to Pharaoh, and the one who speaks the message is whom? It's, it's Aaron, and he's the prophet. So, so God's basically just making an analogy. 
And and uh, the second thing I want to point out in these verses is that God desires to make His name known. God desires to make His name known. The, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And why? That I may multiply my signs and wonders. Why? Verse 4, When Pharaoh does not listen to me, then I'll lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts. And then verse 5, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt. See what God's doing? This is another theme that runs throughout the book of Exodus. God is seeking to make His name known. He wants people of all nations, not just Israel, to know that He is God. And so He will harden Pharaoh's heart so that He can perform His signs and wonders to Pharaoh and that Pharaoh and the people of Egypt will know that He is God. The third thing I want to point out in these five verses is that God's power has no limits. God's power has no limits, including the control of evil. Look back to verse 3 again. And I want to just take some time to talk about what it means here. Verse 3, chapter 7. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Let me show you the evidence of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart because you may already have some ideas of what the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is. But I want to show you some evidence from the text that will help affirm what is the case about God's, God's, um, God's interaction with Pharaoh when it comes to hardening his heart. I want to make three statements that we must affirm uh, based on the, the text of Scripture and then finish by showing how this helps our understanding of the passage. Okay, But first, let's look at the evidence from the text. Turn to chapter 7, verse 13. Okay, there are three ways in which we read about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. One is we could call it a neutral position. It just records that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Okay, that's the first one I'm going to show you. And this is, uh, this is spoken of in these ways seven times in the book of Exodus. Here's the first one, chapter 7, verse 13. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord said. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn or hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Then verse 22, But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord said. Now there are four more that we could look at, but basically I just want to show you that first one. And it's basically a kind of a neutral position. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It's just an explanation of what happened. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Okay, here's the second one. Chapter 8, verse 15. Chapter 8, verse 15. This is the second way in which it describes Pharaoh's heart. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. Okay, so now we get a little bit more uh, explanation of what's happening. It's not just that his heart was hardened, kind of passively, but that he hardened his own heart, right? Look at verse 20, uh, 32, chapter 8, verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. So these are, as the plagues are coming, the text of Scripture tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And there's one other text where it records Pharaoh hardening his heart. So seven times, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, just kind of neutral. Three times, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then here's the third way in which it's spoken of, and it is that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Look at chapter 9, verse 12. We already saw the one in chapter 7, right? 
I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Here's one where uh, the text says that, that God did it. Chapter 9, verse 12. When the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them. Chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Verse 20. Chapter 10, verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the sons of Israel go. And then verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was not willing to let them go. And I could go on and on. There are nine times in which it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart or that he promised to do so. So we have this neutral one. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. We have Pharaoh... Hardening, hardening his own heart three times, and God promising to harden Pharaoh's heart or actually hardening it nine times. So, based on the text of Scripture, let me give you a little pop quiz. Okay, true or false? Pharaoh's heart was hardened. True, good. All right, one for one. Number two, true or false? Pharaoh hardened his own heart. True. Number three, true or false? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. True, right? The text of Scripture confirms all three of those. And what we should recognize is that long before Pharaoh hardened his own heart, God promises to harden it, right? The first time we come across the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is not uh, not a record of Pharaoh hardening his own heart. It's actually chapter 4, verse 21, when God promises, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then chapter 7, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So long before Pharaoh hardened his own heart, God promises to harden it. And this is consistent with the New Testament, Romans 9.18. God hardens whom He wants to harden. God hardens their hearts. So, let me give you three statements that I think we must affirm, and then we'll finish by looking at our understanding, how this affects our understanding of the passage. Okay, three statements that we must affirm. I think the first two you'll agree with. The third one might take some convincing. The first one is this. We must affirm that God cannot do evil. God cannot do evil and therefore does not take responsibility for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in the sense that he did it. He caused it. He's the author of it. God cannot do evil. Number two, statement we must affirm is that Pharaoh is responsible for his own evil. Is that true? Pharaoh responsible for his own evil? Is, is God opposed to evil? Does God ever do evil? Absolutely not. Okay, so we, I think we can affirm those two very quickly. Here's a third one that I think might take a little convincing, and I'll spend a little time on it. Number three, I think we must affirm, according to the text of Scripture, that evil cannot be outside of God's control. Evil cannot be outside of God's control. What is the alternative? If evil is outside of God's control, what's the alternative? What do we have to say? Okay, God is not sovereign. It's, it's actually what theologians call open theism. Open theism. It's the idea that God cannot know the future because the future cannot be known. It's the idea that God is learning things. That God is reacting. That God is just like a really good chess player. He doesn't really know what's going to happen. He's just... He's just pretty smart when it comes to what's going to happen, so he, he takes an educated guess. So what I'm suggesting to you is either we believe in open theism that God doesn't know the future and that God doesn't control the future, or we believe that 
evil is not outside of God's control. Or we could say it positively, God has control over all evil. Listen to these verses, and we don't have time to turn to them, but I'll just read them for you. Isaiah 14:24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned it, so it will stand. There's no qualifications that just as I plan these good things, so these good things have happened. Just as I've planned it, everything. With regard to the invasion of, of Judah there in Isaiah, so it will happen. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there's none like me, declaring the, the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. How could God possibly say that if He didn't have control over evil? Isaiah 65:24. Before they call, I will answer. And while they're speaking, I will hear. Right? God knows what's going to happen before it happens because He's planned it all, right? Matthew 6, 8. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Right? He's not just making a guess. I, I, kind of idea, I, I kind of have an idea. Oh, God knows. 1 John 3.20 God is greater than our hearts and He knows all things. Friends, God never reacts. That is, He is not bound by anything outside of Himself, including time, including human action, whether it be good or evil. And the, the greatest example of this is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, right? God knew exactly what was going to happen because He planned it. It was according to His predetermined plan. Acts 2 and Acts 4 tell us. God never reacts in that He doesn't know what's going on because He's planned it. Everything happens exactly as God intends it because He's planned it. Now, clearly, the difficult part is trying to explain the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Right? So what what does this mean? How does this all work? How does it work that God is somehow innocent of the evil, but He still plans it, that He still hardens Pharaoh's heart? Well, theologians explain this hardening by saying that God removed the restraints that are on mankind. That is, Pharaoh and all sinners have desire built within them to do the worst kinds of evil. And if it were not apart from God, if it were not because of God's overruling common grace, we would all go to our desired ends of evil. And so what's happening is God's restraining us kind of like a dog on a leash and He lets, he lets it go a little bit when He wants that evil to accomplish what He has intended for good. That is, He removes the restraints for a period of time so that exactly what He, he wants to do will happen. Theologian uh, Augustus H. Strong uses the analogy of a volcano with regard to our hearts. He says, our hearts are full of sin. And like a volcano is full of lava, there is sin in there. And that sin will come out. But God restrains it from coming out until He sees fit that it's going to be something that's going to accomplish His purpose. And so it's kind of like the lava flowing over the volcano, down the side, spilling over. And, and, it, and He does it in such a way to cause the least amount of harm while at the same time bringing the most glory to Himself. So that someone like Joseph could say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? For good. So, 
I, I think we have to affirm that evil is not outside of God's control. Now, how does this affect our understanding of the passage? How does this fit into what God's been saying? And I think it is this. God prevents Pharaoh from weaseling his way out of judgment. When the Bible says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, it, gives, it should give Moses and us confidence that because God has ex- ex- planned exactly what Pharaoh will do, even if it be evil, then Moses can be sure that Pharaoh's not going to weasel his way out, keep Israel from going away. Moses can be confident that God's in control of it all, right? There's nothing for him to fear. Let me leave you with four points of application quickly. Number one, our troubles cloud our view of reality. Our troubles cloud our view of reality. When Moses told the people of Israel that God was, had promised them and He was with them, they responded with despondency. They were just too far into their cruel bondage and they, they couldn't see things for what they were. And that's just the nature of human life, isn't it? That we have a hard time seeing through the darkest trials in life. Sometimes that is when we can see God the clearest. And thankfully, we have God who is, number two, God is the lifter of our heads. I love that song that we sang that comes from Psalm 3. Psalm 3 3 says, You are a shield about me and my glory, the lifter of my head. Isn't it amazing how much we drop our heads spiritually? When God regenerates us, our eyes are fixed on Him. We turn our gaze off of our own circumstances, our own accomplishments. And we turn to God. And we say at salvation, nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to your cross I cling. We turn away from ourselves and to God. In fact, we can't come to salvation any other way. And in salvation, God is the lifter of our heads. And at that time, we are focused on God. But then, as we get beat down by life, and as we get distracted by the cares of this world, what happens? Our heads start to drop. And before we know it, we're like Moses and like the people of Israel and like they will be in the wilderness. We have our eyes fixed on our circumstances and our trouble and our inability to get out. And we say to God, either verbally or with our actions, God, where are You? Why have You not, as Moses says at the end of chapter 4, why have You not followed through on Your promises? Or chapter 5, excuse me. Why haven't You followed through? Do you know what God does? Do you know what God does to Moses? Do you know what God does? I pray that He does to you. He lifts up your head. He reminds you of who He is and He reminds you about His presence and He reminds you of His promises. Psalm 121, 1 and 2, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. God is the lifter of our heads. Number three, our solution is often different from God's. Our solution is often different from God's. Our solution, like Moses, often includes a fast resolution, a quick one, or a complete extraction from our trial. When God often allows us to go deeper into the trial, God often wants to change us through the trial. Our solution is often different from God's. And then number four, we often can't see God's power until long after He's delivered us. And this is what's going to happen with Israel. They don't understand what God's doing. It seems like He's making it worse. 
But when they turn around and look at the, the devastating effects on Egypt at the Red Sea, they will remember when they are at Mount Sinai and they think back to all that God has done to deliver them to this point, they will remember who God is. And that's often the case with us. We want God to, to deliver us on our timetable. We don't want to wait. And yet God has great purposes in it. And He often doesn't show us His power until after it's done. Our job is simply to trust in Him, to believe in Him now. God responds to the disappointment, the despair of His people by reminding them of His power, His presence, and His promise to deliver. And this entire passage points to the fact that Moses is not the hero of the Exodus events. God is. Let's pray. Father, lift up our heads this morning. May we not be filled with doubt and disappointment because of some expectation we had for You that was that was illegitimate because it's not something that You promised. Lift our heads to understand that You are powerful to deliver, that You are with us, and that You have promised to do great things for us. May You keep us, help us to persevere all the way till the end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.